Hey guys. Hey. All right. Well, um, tonight is yeah, it's our last open table of the semester, which means we're wrapping up our series on the parables, uh, which, as you probably know, we've been calling our reframe series because uh, Jesus uses these stories in his ministry to reframe and reshape the way his audience views God and views the kingdom. So I'm really excited to get to wrap this up. All right, so when I was a kid, um, my parents had this Christmas tradition where they would give us gifts for something that they called our hope chest. So uh, they were gifts that were for our future selves, usually like household appliances type of things. Um, so they were notoriously my least favorite gifts. They were awful. I mean, like no 10-year-old is asking for a meat thermometer in their stocking. Like, it's, it's awful. But um, I would dump out my entire stocking at, like, in the morning and feel every present and try and figure out which one was the, uh, the Hope Chest gift and open that first because it was always the most disappointing thing. Um, so that was me. Um, and then at school the next week, you know, when everybody asks you, like, what did you get for Christmas? And then everybody compares gifts. I would really play this up. I'd be like, my parents are super weird. They got me like hammers for Christmas, uh, even though they got me real gifts too. Like they're good parents. They got me things that I wanted and like needed, but anyway. Um, then in May, I graduated from college and I had to be a real adult and uh, get an apartment and like furnish said apartment. And I realized that my parents are geniuses these gifts that they gave me for my whole life like were growing and stockpiling in uh, just a random drawer in my room but they came in so clutch because then I didn't have to buy like baking sheets or like a spatula like things that you don't think about when you're getting an apartment um, all of a sudden like I didn't have to buy them or I didn't have to like use weird things in place of like other kitchen appliances so it was great. My parents are awesome. Um, but it, like, I needed the proper perspective to understand the value of the gifts they gave me. And so Jesus is doing something similar with these parables tonight. He's um, trying to change the perspective of his audience so that they can understand the value of the kingdom. Uh, so I'm going to be talking about two parables, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field and the pearl of great price. And they're two that kind of fly under the radar in general when we talk about and think about parables because I think we tend to think of like the longer ones, like the parable of the Good Samaritan or uh, the lost sheep or the prodigal son. But these two uh, together only are only three verses long. But I think they bring up ideas that summarize a lot of what we've been talking about this semester. So we find them in Matthew 13 um, in a long series of parables that Jesus gives. And so um, they're all about the nature of the kingdom of God. And so uh, if we look in Matthew 13, uh, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So, to put these in context, shortly before 
these two parables. Uh, Jesus gives the parable of the soils that Bonnie talked about at the beginning of the semester, uh, she, where she gave like three sermons. I should know this. Three sermons. Um, and they, Jesus talks about four different types of soil, and those represent the different ways that um, people can either accept or reject the kingdom of God. So after that, he goes into six parables in a row that all start with this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like, uh, and then goes on to tell a parable. So basically what he's doing is telling one longer parable, saying, I'm going to tell you guys about this awesome thing, the kingdom, and there are a lot of different ways you can react to that. And after he kind of preps his audience, he goes into uh, a bunch of different parables that all explain something about the nature of the kingdom. So in a way, these parables are Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God. He's prepped his audience for what they're about to hear, uh, and now he's proclaiming this new age that he's bringing about, but which is going to look a lot different than what they expect. Another important thing to note for context, uh, when Jesus says the kingdom of God is like, I think that sometimes we can read that as like a simile and then um, just assume that he's trying to make a direct comparison between the kingdom and then the first object that he mentions in his parable. Um, so simile is a comparison between two things using like or as. English major, they said it wouldn't be useful. Here we are. Um, so it would be something like Hugh is as tall as a giraffe, where we're comparing two things. Right. So we're comparing two things uh, to make a point. Um, that is not what Jesus is doing in these parables. Uh, so instead, a, a more direct translation of his phrase would actually be, it is like this with the kingdom of God. So instead of comparing the kingdom to one thing, he's comparing it to like, or he's using the, the parable as a whole to make a comparison. And I think it's important to understand this because when we look at those phrases as similes, we then tend to turn the parables into an allegory. So we say, okay, if the kingdom of God is a merchant, then what is the pearl? And then we start like assigning really weird, like bigger meanings to all of these different objects in the parables, which gives us uh, very, very strange interpretations. So I want to make sure um, that is not what Jesus is doing with these, um, and, and that's not how we're interpreting them. So, okay. Let's focus on the parables specifically now. Thinking about these in context of Bonnie's sermon last week about the now and not yet nature of the kingdom of God, these parables are focusing more on the now, on the kingdom that Jesus is ushering into the world as we see it. And so we have two men who each encounter something of great value, one a treasure and the other a pearl. And each of them sees this and immediately recognizes an incomparable value in these things, and so they decide to sell everything they have in order to obtain this treasure. And there's so much joy in the recognition that these men have. They're eager to sell everything they own in order to obtain the treasure they found. Everything they were and everything they have is sacrificed in order to receive this valuable treasure. And that reaction, that joy, and that sacrifice is how Jesus wants us to be approaching the kingdom of God. There's an urgency 
to these men's reactions. They're not waiting for tomorrow, and they're not trying to negotiate for a better price, but they see how valuable the kingdom is and decide to sell everything because everything they have is still not even, doesn't even compare to the worth of what they're getting. And so Jesus is saying that the worth of the kingdom is such that when we truly see it, when we recognize the sacrifice that he's made and the love God has for us, our reaction should be one of sheer joy and amazement to the point that we freely give our lives to him. He's also showing us the cost of the kingdom. It's not something we can earn our way into, but just as these men see their treasures, recognize their value, and give everything up, Jesus is saying that the value of the kingdom is so high that when we truly see it, the most natural response is for us to want to give up anything in order to get it. And so our giving up of ourselves comes in response to the beauty and the worth of the kingdom, not in a way to try to earn it. And so when we acknowledge Christ as our Savior, we become kingdom people. We no longer belong to this world, but instead we get to become children of God. And John talks about this in his gospel. In John uh, 1.12, he says, Yet to all who did receive him, uh, talking about Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So when we're accepted into this family, we receive the kingdom in our lives by giving all we are and all we have to God so that he can make us new and transform us into kingdom people. And though we live in this world, we have a kingdom perspective. And by being fully and unconditionally transformed by God, we can actually bring part of the kingdom into this world today. We're submitting ourselves, our pride, our ambitions, and our desires to God with the faith that what he gives us and what he makes us into is so much greater than those other things and then greater than anything that we could achieve on our own. The kingdom is God's gift to us. He wants each of us to possess it and be his children and inherit his kingdom, but we can't do it while we're focused on something else. So if we see our identity in something other than God, we can never truly possess his kingdom. Yet when we do submit ourselves to God, we find out exactly how tied to this world we actually are and how many different things are trying to grab at our attention and our energy. And so we end up going through a process of transformation that may be much more difficult than we originally anticipated. So in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis gives a really cool image of this process of transformation and what it feels like. Uh, so I'm just going to read a passage from that. He says, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and fixing the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew these jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one that you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought 
he was going, you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. He is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. You see, the kingdom is costly. We have to recognize that it demands we submit every part of ourselves to God, even the parts that we don't think need fixing. But at the same time, it's not expensive. We're receiving something of such greater value than that which we give. So, does that make sense? The kingdom is costly, but it's not expensive. And I know that these conversations about the nature of the kingdom can get, like, a little out there. So, um, let's look at more specific examples from the Bible. Um, When God, we see God doing this in people's lives He's initiating the process of transformation by demanding the thing that they value the most. So there are two men in particular that I want to look at tonight, uh, Abraham and the rich young ruler. So God asks each of these two men to give him the thing they love most, and they each give him a different response. So first we'll start with Abraham. Uh, We run into him in Genesis, and God makes this guy some big promises uh, at about 99 years old, uh, he has no children, but God says, I'm going to make you into the father of many nations with offspring as innumerable as the stars in the sky. And he even changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of many. And God comes through. So pretty soon his wife gets pregnant. Uh, they have a son, Isaac, and everybody's really excited. Uh, but... <laughs> But then uh, the story takes a little bit of a turn, and a few years later, God says, uh, Abraham, so remember when I gave you a son, Isaac, uh, and he's the thing you love most in the world? Um, take him to this mountain and sacrifice him as a burnt offering to me. Uh, so, you know, not the ideal situation. <laughs> Um, But Abraham's faith is so strong in this moment, and his identity is so rooted so firmly in God that he takes Isaac, he goes to the mountain, he ties him up and prepares to offer him as a sacrifice. And he does all of this because he knows God. He knows the nature of the Holy One. This is a God that gave him a son when he and his wife were, were in their old age. He's made them bold promises, and he's come through thus far. And so he believes that God will somehow deliver Isaac. As they're on their way to the mountain, he has a servant stay behind, and he tells the servant, look, Isaac and I are going to go up. Uh, We're going to sacrifice, but then we will come back. He obeys God, trusting that God is who he says he is, and that he's one who will fulfill his promises. And he's right. God stops him from killing Isaac, provides a ram for them to sacrifice instead, and then through Isaac, he fulfills all of the promises he made. He raises up the uh, Jewish people, and then eventually he gives us Jesus. Abraham held nothing back from God, not even the thing he loved the most. And through that obedience, he had the opportunity to participate in God's mission and see his miracles more closely. In contrast to that, we have the rich young ruler. Um, This is a guy that we run into uh, in the Gospels, and he's objectively a pretty righteous guy. Uh, He comes 
to Jesus asking how he can achieve eternal life, saying that he's uh, held, kept up all of the, um, all the laws and requirements uh, thus far, and he's lived essentially a perfect life. Um, and as Mark says in his gospel, Jesus looked at this man and loved him. And because of that love, he picks out the one thing he knows this man has placed above God and asks him to give it up. So he says, go, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. And this young man walks away. We never see him again. We never even get to know his name. He couldn't give up his wealth. He couldn't sacrifice his identity in order to gain the kingdom. And we remember him as the rich young ruler. His legacy is exactly what he chose it to be. He chose his wealth over Jesus. And as long as he held on to that worldly identity, he could never fully know God. And it's such a tragic story. I mean, this is a guy, he had the answer right in front of him. It was within his grasp. He was standing in front of the Savior of the world, and he said no. It's like he found the treasure in the field and then just walked away. And this story shows us that the gospel is dangerous. It demands everything or nothing. We can't attach conditions to our obedience. We can't negotiate for control. We have to give it all away. Uh, Pastor Mark Batterson summarizes this story really beautifully. He says, Either Jesus is Lord of all, or he isn't Lord at all. Jesus loved this man far too much to ask for anything less. And I think that's something that applies to us today as well. Jesus loves us far too much to ask for anything less than all of who we are. He doesn't force the kingdom on us, but he offers us the chance to participate with him in ushering the kingdom into earth. But at the end of the day, we have to choose. And these years of your life, I think, are some of the most critical in determining who you're going to serve, your Jesus or yourself. And I know Georgetown is hard, uh, and consciously or not, I think we live with this mentality that once we leave this place, things are somehow going to get easier, and life will have more structure, and we'll have the time to reprioritize our lives, but that is not really how life works. Um, that's not how I've experienced it anyway. Um, but I mean, I lived like that when I was in college. That's definitely the mentality that I have. But after you graduate, life continues in all of its complications and stress and difficulty. And so we have to learn how to submit ourselves to God now. Um, and so I know that like it's easy to sort of talk about all these things, but not really understand what it might look like. And even the example of Abraham, like God's probably not asking you for your firstborn son. Um, but so I want to I give you a little bit of my own story as maybe uh, an example. So uh, I grew up in a small town in Montana. Uh, I, had an, I have an amazing family. Um, they are, they love me. They love God. My dad uh, was a preacher. And so I grew up both as a preacher's kid and living in a small town, really feeling like I lived in this fishbowl where everybody was looking in and sort of judging and um, 
evaluating me all the time and probably read more of that into my life than actually existed like thought there were a lot more expectations than people actually had but um, anyway I pushed myself to be perfect in every possible way partially because I thought that's what Christianity was, was like just being perfect and doing all of the right things um, but pretty soon I began to place my identity in all of these different facets of perfection in my life. I cared way too much about what everybody thought of me, um, and getting good grades wasn't enough. I had to be the best in my class. I had to be the best athlete. Um, and all of these things really defined my life. But then my sophomore year of high school, I started getting this weird pain in my legs, which if you're a runner, isn't that unusual. Uh, you just take a couple weeks off and then usually can get back into it. So I did that and then uh, it didn't get better. Uh, in fact, the pain started to spread and come more and more frequently uh, to the point where I was just living basically every moment in pain and I had no explanations for it. And so uh, as I watched, Basically, every pillar of my life on which I had built my identity started to come crumbling down. And I mean, I couldn't play sports. I, my, I wasn't performing at the same level academically because I was missing a lot of school for doctor's appointments, but also I just couldn't focus um, when I was working on homework. And uh, in that year and a half that it took me to get a diagnosis uh, of, a, of a nerve disorder that causes chronic pain, I was slowly stripped of everything uh, that had previously defined me. And it, it came to a point where I sort of was at the end of myself. I had basically no more faith in doctors or in anyone. And so I, in desperation, I turned to God really more authentically than I ever had before. And I said, like, okay, all I have left is you. So... Um, so I guess we'll go with that. Um, and I surrendered to God more authentically than I ever had before because I had never really had to do it before. Um, and it's not like I got better, but I found a peace in him that I had never had before that. And I um, began the slow process of working towards a contentment that uh, relied on him and his steadiness and not on my my own accomplishments or my own circumstances. And so uh, the, my first three years of college, if you had asked me for my testimony, that's probably where I would have stopped it and then said something along the lines of, you know, I went through this really difficult thing, but God brought me through and I encountered him in this really beautiful and authentic way and he changed me and now I find my identity in him and like all those little buzzwords, you know, um, but the reality is I continued to struggle with those issues of misplaced identity all through college. I still do. Um, when I was an undergrad, I was obsessed with my grades. This part of the year was always the worst because I would start to like just have this pit in my stomach. Like, what if my GPA drops by anything? Um, <laughs> and um, I... Yeah, I, I would get so anxious about that. And then, um, to an extent, like, my pain became part of my identity and um, the way I defined myself. I had this sort of, like, perverse pride in the fact 
that I was like surviving Georgetown while also experiencing uh, this chronic pain. Um, I also, you know, I was really into the whole, like, I got to get the best job and internship. Um, so there were a lot of different things that I still <laughs> did get the best internship. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so there were all of these other things that I was building my identity on, even in college, even after I would, like, say, oh, yeah, Jesus is my full identity. Um, but in all of that, I ignored the fact that I was still serving myself. I wasn't seeking fulfillment in Christ, and I wasn't living in faith or trusting in the promises that he'd made me. I bought into the idea that my transformation had happened. I knew God. He changed me. Um, but that's not really how it works. Real submission to God, real obedience, and a real kingdom mindset require consistent daily choices and sacrifices. And so every day I have to ask God to transform me and to replace my desires with his own and to remind me of what he's done for me. And then at the end of every day, I have to ask his forgiveness for all the ways that I failed. And it's a process. It's one that's not going to ever stop. Um, but it's one in which God is slowly replacing parts of me with himself, and uh, he's changing me from a cottage to a mansion. And the beautiful thing is Jesus offers this transformation to each one of us. He asks that we give up ourselves, but first he offers us himself. Now, if we consider the season of Advent that we're in right now, um, we see part of that sacrifice that he makes. Jesus chose to leave heaven, leave perfect unity with the Godhead, and come down to be with us, to experience life, and then to die and rise again, so that these things, these, uh, these other aspects of identity, wouldn't have to have any more power over us. We can... We can give ourselves fully to him, knowing that he made the sacrifice first and more, more fully than we, we ever could. So uh, let's go to questions now, and then um, I'll wrap this up and we'll go to worship. Cool. All right, so we have two questions. Before we give away everything in pursuit of the kingdom of God, you said we must see it. How exactly do we go about seeing it? How do we go about seeing the kingdom of God? Good question. Um, <laughs> skip. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> um, you know, I think that, like, everybody has their own story, and I think that that's one of the most powerful things that God gives us, which is, like, one of the reasons that why I wanted to, like, share part of my story with you tonight, because... I think that we can see the kingdom most effectively in the way that God has acted in other people's lives if we can't see it in our own life. Um, you know, at, at a conference I was at this summer, one of the speakers said that, you know, there are four Gospels. Most people will never read them, but they'll read a fifth Gospel that is your life. And that has really stuck with me. Like, people will only know the kingdom through, through kingdom people. And so for those of us who believe in Jesus and who have given our lives to him, 
that adds an, a responsibility to us to live this out and bring the kingdom and, and God's peace and grace and justice and love to the world so that other people can find it. Uh, and if you haven't um, met Jesus yet in like a very authentic way or don't feel like you're part of the kingdom, then um, I'd encourage you to like sit down with somebody in this room, um, find a leader, somebody with a red name tag, and just ask them their story. Because they're, everyone in here has, has one, and they all demonstrate something different and amazing about God. So. And the second and last question, why did the man find the treasure and then choose to hide it again? Why, why isn't he showing it to the world? Why isn't he showing it to the world? Well, I mean, he, he, he wanted to acquire it first, like he wanted to possess it first. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, that parable seems like kind of sketchy to us in like our 21st century context. Um, but it's also, like, they didn't have banks back in that time. So what people would do with their wealth is they would, they would hide it because, like, there wasn't, like, an institution that you could go and say, like, here, hold my money for me. Um, so it wasn't, like, that uncommon for treasure to be hidden. And then um, I guess, like, if this man found it, um, it's, it's a treasure that had been, like, long forgotten. And so he, he wanted to do everything that he could to acquire it because he saw like, how much it was worth. And so, um, yeah, like I, I guess I don't really know if that's like, there's more to the question to that or if I'm just missing something, but I mean, he wanted it. So, yeah, okay, okay, cool. Um, so in a few minutes, we're gonna go into a time of worship, but before that, I want us to take a few moments to just pray and reflect. Um, wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus, I want to encourage you to reflect what it meant for him to give everything for you. And like I said, this season of Advent really lends itself to this for us um, because, you know, Jesus coming to earth being born was the kingdom coming to earth. And so if we reflect on that and what, what that meant uh, for us, I think that um, it, it'll be really powerful. Um, so as we, as we pray and reflect on this past semester, I want you to ask yourself a few questions. Um, so how does the sacrifice that Jesus made change the way you view your life? How does it reframe your priorities? And what parts of your life do you need to submit to God right now? So let's just take a few minutes and uh, pray to ourselves, and then, and then Joanne will, will take us away. <laughs> 